Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we're exploring the digital revolution in this time of the COVID-19 crisis as well. We've adapted a lot of our programming here to, to take a look at these issues as everybody around the world is sort of captivated by and captive to a little bit this situation we're dealing with. One of our guests, Wayne Satan, who's on with us today, has had a front row seat to a lot of this as he's been a CIO, a CTO, a CDO, and he's now advising boards and CEOs on sort of this fusion of business and technology strategy. And at this time, I would suspect that a lot of Wayne's work is helping leaders and companies understand what does the impact of a massive event like this, unprecedented, unexpected, what does that do to planning? What does that do to how we think about day-to-day -day operations? How do we look at things today? and into tomorrow. So Wayne, welcome. Always good to see you. Good morning, Bob. It's very good to be here. I'm glad to be safe. I'm glad to be healthy. And I'm glad to still be relevant, given the situation in the world. Yeah, Wayne, highly relevant, more so than other stuff. And uh, Wayne, it was interesting, you know, we've, uh, uh, our producer, Bill Cozell and I have used uh, the Zoom app for 120, 125 episodes of Cloud Wars Live. It's worked flawlessly. Today, we hung up, we got hung up a little. We uh, needed to enter a password. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, a couple of points. First of all, kudos to Zoom for stepping up and stepping in. And everybody I know personally who doesn't have a corporate account with Zoom now has a personal account with Zoom. And it's connecting an awful lot of people. But when you recognize there's a password, let's think about why. And I have no insider knowledge, but I'm guessing the phenomenon of Zoom bombing, where people are able to connect to a random Zoom session and cause mischief or record, has caused them to tighten. Um, as you probably know, over the weekend, there's been a lot of questions raised about routing things through China. There's questions raised about security. And again, I have no knowledge of what's true and what's not inside Zoom, but I know that people are starting to question, is there one right tool to solve whatever problem we're facing. And so we've got to be adaptable. We figured out today there was a password. The meeting got delayed for a couple of minutes. You guys figured out the password and here we are. And I'll just use that as a metaphor for how many meetings have I been to where somebody couldn't get connected, where some piece of technology didn't work, where somebody was in a t-shirt. I've never done this in a t-shirt before, but this is the new normal. And so We've got to be adaptable, we've got to be flexible, and we've got to be able to pivot from here to here as situations change. Uh, Wayne, I want to share with you, just as you mentioned the thing about the t-shirt, uh, I, I saw recently, I guess it was about a week ago, but there was a sophomore, New York City high school sophomore, and she wrote a guest editorial for, uh, it appeared in USA Today and other uh, affiliated media properties all over the country, but it was from, you know, the perspective of a 15-year-old, what are the rules of, you know, Zoom life here in uh, April 2020? And uh, it was really fascinating. Wrote about that, uh, recently talked about it in the newsletter, but she did talk about that thing of, uh, you know, it's one thing to roll out of bed and be ready to join your Zoom classmates. But sometimes when you roll out of bed, you're people haven't always thought fully through their uh, how they're dressed <clears throat> and how they look on Zoom. So one of her classmates uh, gave people maybe a little too much information about is it tidy whities or is it some <laughs> other sort of uh, <laughs> undergarments. So 
yeah, we, we, we've got to keep a hand on things. But I agree with you, Wayne. Kudos to Zoom. Uh, the, the, it's extraordinary what they've done. Some of the other tech vendors, uh, the, the resiliency, the scalability that they've shown on this has been incredible. But to your larger point here about you had some ideas on today and tomorrow. And I think part of this notion is, you know, when this crisis passes, we can, some people are saying, well, we'll go back to the way things used to be, but at least in the work life or technology empowered work from home work life, you have some interesting thoughts about that. Well, yeah, in general, I'm just going to make the broad sweeping statement. The world has changed. We're going to see this in the future as pre COVID and post COVID worlds, because many things that we've put in place now in a hurried scramble to keep things running, are going to be now built into the fabric of what we do. And a lot of what people are seeing, and I'm not, not a sociologist and don't claim to be, people are going to see the world differently. Are we going to want to shake hands? Are we going to want to get on that airplane? Are we going to want to go to a meeting in person versus go to a meeting virtual? So we're looking at what's happening today in the world around us, but recognize that the behaviors we're putting in and shaping right now are going to be ingrained for a long time. Some of them are because they're safety. Some of them because we just like them better. Some of them because it becomes habit. How, I don't know how many repetitions you need. I've heard 3,000 repetitions of something before you get innate mastery of it. So once we've done our hundreds of Zoom meetings or Teams meetings or whatever meetings, once we've rolled out of bed into a meeting and not done the commute for an hour and a half or two hours, I'm on public transportation particularly, how many people are going to say, this is my normal? And we'll talk about tomorrow in a little bit. But as we open the world back up, today is going to look like it does today into tomorrow as we slowly open the world. So let's talk about today first. Yeah. We all, uh, right before Texas started the non-mandatory, but please everybody go work from home. And our, a couple of my clients put everybody on work from home that could work from home. You and I did a column and we talked about what could you do right now? How do you maintain safety, but productivity? And so those things, uh, there wasn't much of a prediction. I predicted one day later, but it was about have equipment at home. Uh, I'm a consultant, so I tend to keep three sets of everything, at least. I keep a set at home, I keep a set for on the road, and then if I'm at a big client or a, a recurring engagement, I'll keep a set there. So I literally was at a client, and I have my $200 video camera and my own keyboard and a beautiful monitor they gave me, and I went to Amazon and I ordered another keyboard and another $200 HDR mm -hmm. camera and had them shipped home. And guess what? I never went back to that client. I probably could have, we're not on a full lockdown, but I decided why would I take the risk just to pick up a camera when I could have another one at home? Um, a couple of my clients went out and bought people headsets. I'm wearing, I'm gonna put, a, put in a plug, I have no connection with this company. This is a Blue Parrot headset. It is 60 something dollars refurbished. It plugs into my computer, so I don't need a wire if I don't want one. It runs on Bluetooth. And I wanna point something out. It has a noise canceling microphone. I live alone, so it's not a problem. But we shipped these out to some of our executives who originally said, why do I want to look like a Starbucks employee? And now that they have them, you can't hear the dog, you can't hear the kids, you can't hear the TV in the other room with the teenagers home from college. So having a noise canceling microphone 
is a big step towards seeming like you're in the normal world. And so having this equipment available to people, whether the company bought it and shipped it out, whether they made it available through the company store that some people have, or whether everybody just went off to Amazon or Best Buy or Walmart and bought it, it is super important to have this work at home equipment. Um, a couple of my clients went out and quickly bought every laptop they could put their hands on because their workforce didn't have laptops. And the, by the way, the laptop users left their laptops sitting on their desk every night because unless they had to take them home for work, they didn't bring them home. We started telling everybody to bring them home. We bought everybody extra power bricks because people even who brought their laptops home said, I never put it on the charger. I only need it for three hours, but now they're home for three weeks or two months. And so a lot of those things companies have had to learn, I believe, and I hope we're past that point. But so today, what are we still left with? The companies have to say, is my network adequate? Now, I had a client that we did a year-long network project, upgraded their network, put in a new SD-WAN, gave them carrier diversity, um, bandwidth bonding, and we finished it, no kidding, about a week before everybody went to work from home. The VPN went up by a factor of between 10 and 50 in capacity, and nobody's had any problems. Um, not prescience, just luck. We had a project, we had bad infrastructure, we kept it up. So a message for the future of this will be technical debt at the best of times. Remember, technical debt is all the stuff you should have done and didn't. And technical debt has a way of rearing its ugly head at the worst times, in the event of a natural disaster, in the event of a corporate problem, in the event of a, a power failure. That's when all the creaky old stuff shows you that it's creaky and old. Does anybody know about, does anybody know COBOL, first of all? Have you seen that the state of New Jersey put out an urgent request for COBOL programmers to help fix the state unemployment system? And I haven't programmed in COBOL in 30 years, but I thought about replying. This is a scary situation for people that have built their technology on a stack of cards and built up that technical debt and said, ah, we'll take care of it later. Now, I'm gonna point something out. You're not fixing it in the middle of this crisis. Um, there's a saying from the military or police, the worst time to acquire a new skill is in the middle of a gunfight. We're in the middle of a gunfight. So this is not the time to be ripping up your network. This is not the time to be probably putting in a brand new system this week while we're still in this environment unless you're in a very special situation, you're not gonna fix the problem. You're gonna fight what you fight the war you're in with the stuff you brought. And here's where we are. So hopefully we're able to fix stuff around the edges. Hopefully we're able to use the tools we have. But, but I think, Bob, we're gonna see that companies that prepared better are in a better place. I've got clients that have moved a lot of their stuff to the cloud, to Microsoft 365, to SharePoint, to OneDrive, to cloud-based applications. And they probably transitioned without a hitch. Now, other clients didn't quite get that far and have more stuff back in a data center. And maybe they've got to go into the data center more often, and maybe they can't. And so here we are with a case where putting things in hyperscale cloud, eliminating your technical debt, might have prepared you better for the present we're now in. So while none of us can foresee the future, of course, getting rid of your technical debt always positions a company to be more nimble, to be more agile, to be more flexible, and to be more responsive. And so, so that's today.
when you know i think there's the 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 point that really comes top of mind for me is and it isn't by any means the first time you've mentioned it is technical debt you've been talking about this for a year and you know that uh it's never good and uh, eventually at a time when you you know some companies can least uh, afford to have it you know rear its ugly head and bite them in a a tough place there it's going to do that and so i think that your comments about the danger of that the uh the insidiousness of it and it's it's not going to go away it can't be well you can ignore it but only sort of at your own peril it's 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 not gonna do anything but get worse over time so i wanted to see you know you sit down with a board of directors and they're saying wayne you know, we, we, we find our company sort of got caught uh, with some pretty bad exposure here. We don't want this to happen again. Can you give us a few points that you would advise that to bulletproof us as best as possible for the next one? Sure. And we can talk a lot about that. But I'll say the first thing, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said that, um, I, I learned a philosophy of IT. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, shout out a guy named Rob Johnson who used to work for me ran an IT group for me at a shop. And he coined a phrase that I've stolen with attribution. And he said, it's patch, polish, then perfect. So let's talk about that for a minute. The patch, polish, perfect methodology says, most of us don't have the luxury of going in Greenfield and starting from scratch. We're going to build the Taj Mahal. What we have is what we have. We have the systems in in front of us. So what I'd recommend to a board today, which is the same thing I've recommended for the 10 years I've been doing this, is patch polish perfect. So if something is falling over, it's just broken, it doesn't work, let's patch it. Let's figure out how to keep it running for the next day, week, month. Then we can polish it. Once stuff is not broken, we go polish it. We make it so that it's not annoying. We make it so that some of the manual steps are out. We make it so the controls are more appropriate. Again, not wholesale change, but how do we fix stuff that's causing our people, our customers, our employees problems. And then we have the luxury of time and money typically, because we've patched and we polished, to go in and look at perfect. And it's not an all encompassing start here, go there. Every system we've got is in patch, polish, perfect mode. Every business unit, every nas- every geography, every piece of our process, maybe the payroll system is in polish mode and the procure to pay is in uh, patch mode. So we've got to build this kind of inventory and think about iterating through our systems. And that goes double for right now. Right now, I've got clients where we've got systems that don't connect very well. So I got system A and I got system B and we have what's called a swivel chair interface. I go over to this screen and I look at it and then I go over to this screen and I type it in. Well, there's an industry known as RPA, robotic process automation. And so if you were to try to fix that because you don't want to send people into the office or people don't tend to have multiple screens at home, perhaps, how do we patch that system by connecting system A to system B or writing a macro that automates this spreadsheet and then takes the spreadsheet from system A and feeds it into system B. And so using RPA tools, we can do that. Now, people are saying, well, you told me don't go out and do major systems projects. RPA sounds pretty major. Well, while there are companies that will sell you complete, comprehensive, expensive RPA tools, recognize something. <clears throat> There's a free tool, IFTTT. There's one called Zapier. They are totally free. They're consumer-oriented, small business-oriented. On the Microsoft side that I know pretty well, 
the product that used to be called Flow, which got renamed as Power Automate, and new versions are just starting to come out of that along with Power Apps, they've added an RPA feature in the April release. Hey, it's still April. This thing is brand new. If you're a Microsoft Power Platform user and you have not looked at Microsoft RPA, stop what you're doing, put this video on pause, and go look at that stuff because it's there depending on the license you have. And you can use it to connect some of these ugly old legacy applications right now. So that's the patch methodology and mindset we can apply. For polishing, again, I've got clients that are using Teams, but they don't really know how to use Teams very well because they haven't been forced to use Teams very well. How does a delegate set up a meeting for you in Teams? It's buried in the documentation. So let's make sure that the delegates, the admins, know how to use that tool so that people understand how to use your Teams room systems. Maybe we ought to send one of those to some of the executives' homes. So there are still things we can do to patch and to polish. Now, Perfect, how do you build a long-term strategy board that allows your systems to run with as little manual intervention, with as little physical touch as possible? And we could talk about that as part of the future rather than the present. But think about Patch Polish Perfect. Think about what tools do you have in your arsenal? What are you paying licenses for that you're not fully utilizing? And again, in the Microsoft case, there's a ton of stuff in Office 365, in Microsoft 365, in the Microsoft Power Platform if you're a D365 user. Nobody's had time to go look at those things. So while you still have, you probably have people in your company running around like crazy people trying to figure stuff out, you probably have some people that are just sitting there and you're sending them to training. What can they do? Put them to work on Power BI, on Power Apps, on Power Automate, on other tools in your arsenal and try to shore up the weak points in your process. It won't be the final answer that you come up with probably. It'll be ugly and semi-manual, but how do you build a system that allows you to work towards the future in the present. It's not about putting in the final, the technical solution. It's about adapting your work process, the way people do business, to be more, less touch points, less physical touch points, less, less office touch points, and more ways to use the tools we have to let the information flow as freely as possible, but with appropriate controls. Because I've got to make this point the opportunities for people to lie, cheat, and steal and just make mistakes have multiplied. A lot of our processes depend on face-to-face -face interaction, counting things, checking things, looking at things, talking to people in person. We're now moving to a virtual environment. There are more places where our checks and balances may have depended on people being in a physical place that are no longer there. So the opportunities are great or control weaknesses to be um, exacerbated. The challenge for us in IT, the challenge for people in audit, the challenge for people in the controls areas are to make sure the controls are appropriate. They're not so strangling that we can't do business, but at the same time, they're protecting the company, our employees, our customers, our stakeholders from the opportunities for deliberate or accidental control failures. So. That would be kind of what I'd say to a board. And in fact, I said something similar to an executive group just the other day. Uh, yeah, Wayne, that was a 
<clears throat> you know, that, that makes a great deal of sense. I, I love the uh, patch polish perfect thing. I was re reflecting on that as we went through the phases of it. I think some of my uh, grade school teachers were wanted to impose that uh, methodology on me. Never got anywhere close to the perfect thing. I don't think I was sort of stuck in the <clears throat> patch and polish world for a while. Wayne, I think those are some terrific, you know, perspectives on stuff. I also wanted to ask you about two other sort of mega issues here. One is, you've certainly touched on some of this as well. What will the sort of new normal for corporate work be like? Uh, how many people are going to say, you know what, uh, I, that, that 45, 50 minute commute to work twice a day doesn't add any value to the work that I do for my company. And, it, and I, by not having to do it, the value I get for me as a person has skyrocketed. I'd like to hold on to some of that. So I think we're going to see a massive shift in this work from home from being uh, an exception to becoming more of the rule. Coming in the other direction, I think some of the big tech companies, and it's been about every single company in the, you know, the Cloud Wars top 10, which I think are the most influential technology companies in the world, has moved into a phase now where they've started to offer a lot of their things for free. And I understand that that's for a limited time, but they're the go-to-market impact of some of those moves that they've made, I think are also going to permanently change in some ways the dynamic coming from the vendor world into the buyer world. So I wonder, Wayne, if you could just uh, offer a thought on each of those things from how has it on the business customer side workforce changed and then from the technology vendor side? Sure. Let's do the technology vendor first because it's, I think, easier to encapsulate. The technology industry, when I started 30 years ago, was a monolithic industry. It was IBM and the bunch. See who remembers that acronym. It was the big company selling software. You bought a tape, you paid the money, they shipped it to you and you got to use it or they licensed it to you for a period of time. And there was not, a, not very many games in town. You bought from IBM or you bought from Oracle or you bought from the big companies and that was it. And then as we moved down scale, democratized, opened up, open source, et cetera, the software business kind of changed, I would say about five to eight years ago. We went from, you got to buy the license and open the box, the shrink wrap and the, the uh, open the shrink wrap and read the license inside to the model that's known as freemium. So a freemium model says here you can use either the full system for a limited time for free or the full system for a limited number of users for free or features of the system for everybody for free, but pay us for the add-ons. And so at the high end of the market, you still have the oracles and you still have the big companies selling very expensive, very functional software by the seat or by the license, by the pound, you know, by the tape or download. But you've got numerous companies selling a product that is extremely capable, that is very cheap. I've advised clients. Now remember, my clients are typically not the Microsofts and the Googles and the Facebooks. They're not the $100 billion companies. They're the half billion to five to 10 billion middle America manufacturer, construction, warehousing, et cetera. Um, these are not people that are on the cutting edge of technology culturally or because of the technical debt they've got and the fact that their industry doesn't value tech. It's just the way it is. So. For many of my smaller clients, I've gone to them and said, you could pay Salesforce or you could pay Microsoft a couple hundred dollars a seat per month for a great CRM. 
or you can go pay somebody else $15 a seat or $25 a seat and get 80% of the features, features that you probably don't need. Um, I run a little business. I'm a one-man company. I use Zoho products. Again, I'm, I'm boosting companies, but just because I use them. Zoho for me is fine. My bill from Zoho is $0 a month. I'm a sole proprietor. Now, the beauty is some of the same tools I've recommended for some of my clients for the $10 a month per seat or the $20 a month per seat product because they need more controls. They need more approval layers. They need more differentiation than me. And so the freemium model, in my view, I want to say this, permanently changed the software industry. The high end, I don't think they're going to take on Microsoft and Salesforce and Workday and the other big companies. If you're a corporation and you want to buy thousands of seats, you need the support, you need the service, you need the customization, you need the partner ecosystem. But if you're below, I'm going to say $100 million in sales, or even if you're a part of a big company and don't need super high-end features or support, why are you paying big bucks for software? Why are you not buying the freemium stuff? Why are you not going to Zoom and paying whatever, I don't know what it costs. Why are you not going to Microsoft and buying a home Teams license that's about to be offered in the home system? So I think the software industry is now, this whole bottom layer has become the freemium model. The top layer is still there for the enterprises. And if you're a software company in the middle, you're getting killed at both ends. The big companies are moving down market. Again, I'm a, I know Microsoft better than the others. I can buy a lot of Microsoft stuff relatively inexpensively and get the enterprise capability of that system. And that may be squeezing out somebody that was half as capable for 75% of the price. At the low end, I can get, for a small company, 80% of what Salesforce or Microsoft or the others give me for 20% of the price. And so I don't think that is new to the COVID period. I think that's accelerated. I think it's become more visible to people but I think that a smart shopper CIO hopefully has been doing that for the last five or 10 years. So I think if you've got a freemium model, you're gonna do very well. Demonstrate the value, scale the product, add features, give me options. If I'm a corporate buyer, what I don't want is three people get to use the product for free. If you want more than three, it's $250 a month. Give me options either to scale by number of users or scale by features, option packages, so that I can mix and match. So Bob, I think I've said this before in this conversation, flexibility, adaptability, the ability to move quickly, sense and respond. What are you seeing in the market? What are we changing? Zoom's the great example. We brought it up at the head of the, the conversation. They added passwords. We haven't seen it before. They added new features to keep people from Zoom bombing your meetings. Um, on the other hand, Microsoft Teams got uh, criticized because you can only see four people on a screen. So they've announced they're accelerating that. They just announced they're going to let you have variable backgrounds behind you because other companies are doing it. So we're all adapting quickly. Uh, the best of us are adapting quickly, and we need to keep doing that. So, so that's kind of the software industry part of this. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the rest of us, the 90% the of us that are not high-tech software companies. So here we are, we're all locked away. I'm obviously over 60, so I'm locked away even tighter than some. Um, what are we gonna do when the government starts to say, we can go back to work? So 
I think we got to divide the future into two phases. It's not going to be here we are, here we are instantly. There is a pre-vaccine pre and a post-vaccine period for unlocking the economy. When it's safe to move around and nobody, no matter what their immunological status or age or ethnicity or gender, has to be unduly afraid of this virus, the world will be able to look a lot like it did before. Until that point, though, there's going to be social distancing. There's going to be masks. There's going to be hand washing. There's going to be a lot of people not traveling, a lot of people working from home by choice or by necessity. I don't want to get sick and be very sick. So we got to think about two parts to it. So first of all, we've learned or are learning how to operate our business remotely. My clients are trying to close the books for the month, close the books for the quarter remotely. Many of them have never tried that before. They're still scurrying into the office, and a couple of them are in essential industries, so we can do that, and able to keep the ship afloat. But let me tell you, we're working very hard with those folks to be able to do a fully remote close from home. We're working very hard to take the paper out of our processes. So, so in the short term, if we don't have everybody back to work right away, a lot of what we have now is going to be in place. However, when people start being able to go back to work and the economy opens up and companies are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm getting cash flow. I have orders coming in. The future doesn't look like it's falling off a cliff. We're going to start investing. What are we going to invest in? Patch, polish, perfect, I hope. We're going to say, where do we still have swivel chair interfaces? Where do we still have paper? So OCR, EDI, API interfaces for exchanging data, uh, putting in software that does workflow automation, I think these are going to skyrocket. Anybody that does not have a robust SD-WAN, software-defined wide area network, better put that investment in. Because what if we had a lockdown again in the fall? Mm -hmm. If your VPN crashes again, shame on you. If it crashes today, okay. Not every one of us wanted to have a 10x capacity headroom in our VPN. But I'll tell you what, knowing what we know today, if you're a company that sees cash flow and is worried about what happens if I have to send more people home in six months, and you are not investing in an SD-WAN, in a network with route diversity, so that if carrier A goes down, I can go to carrier B. If my wire go down, I can go to LTE or even 5G. Shame on you. And this should be boards pushing CIOs and CIOs pushing boards. We've got to be building that capability for resilience, for flexibility. So, so in the short term, I think it's going to be the way we operate now, but in some cases, less of it. In other cases, ready for more of it and be, keep adding flexibility into our system. So today, it would be cloud. It would be software as a service. It would be RPA. It would be, I'm going to say, low-code tools. You've heard me say low-code, no-code tools are the future. Well, I'm telling you they're the present. The ability to say, I don't need an army of programmers. I can build tools. And we can talk about, we have talked about how I can take tools built by non-programmers and make them safe for the company. Uh, so that's a prior discussion and we can have it again in another conversation. We can do this stuff. We can build flexibility. We can build resiliency. We can build no touch operation. And that's the stuff that ought to be happening between now and let's say 
a year from now, 18 months from now, when the, when the vaccine for the virus changes the world. But to the point we made, there are a whole lot of people who are now working from home who kind of wanted to work from home in the first place, but their company said, you know, that just doesn't work for me. I I'm not comfortable unless I can come out of my corner office and look at all my employees and see what's happening. Well, I'm going to send a message to the executives that can't work from home, that have to go stand out and see their employees, that have to feel that sense of control by checking when people come in in the morning. The world has passed you by. You're not going to be able to get away with that in the future. So it's a message to my generation. You've got to adapt. It's no longer going to be okay to say, well, I'm the CEO and you're all coming to work. Because when the economy picks back up and we get to tight labor again, whether that's six months or 16 months, you're not going to be able to get away with that control of employees' lives. Because there are going to be now a majority of other companies doing telework. I got to say, I work in healthcare to some extent. And let's look at one little industry, telemedicine. The telemedicine industry has gone 10 years advanced in 10 weeks, six weeks, maybe 10 days. Telework is now being reimbursed. The, the barrier to telemedicine has never been the technology, really. It's been reimbursement. It's been the government allowed. It's been CMS. It's been insurers, payers agreeing that it's okay. I don't think we're going to put that genie back on that bottle. I think doctors being licensed across state lines. I think telemedicine is going to transform a very big part of our economy. And I think it's going to really show people that the technology is there to support one of the most sophisticated kinds of work, healthcare. And I think we're going to see a renaissance in remote work. So let's take this to the next step. Telemedicine, looking over a screen is very interesting. Hi doc, how are you doing? Tell me about your symptoms. Telemedicine, when it's attached to my Apple watch or some sensor or some ring I wear or some headband I might have on, now the doctor is able to see the symptoms. Now the doctor is able to see telemetry. So IoT, Internet of Things, telemetry, sensing, taking that data and putting it somewhere and making choices and decisions with it. Imagine if we all had a ring. There's a couple of rings being sold for temperature monitoring. And imagine if we all had a ring that monitored our temperature 24 hours a day. And imagine we could opt in for security. I want to opt in. And I want to share that information with the database. You've seen the, the, the fever thermometer map of the United States. Kinsa, I think, is the company that makes the Bluetooth thermometers. Well, imagine we all had a ring, and those of us that wanted, for privacy reasons, mm -hmm. were contributing that. How does that help me have the system tell me, you may be sick and you don't realize it. I notice you're run down. I notice your biorhythms are not right. I notice your EKG is not right. And that's all fed into a telemedicine platform. And an AI is reading it, because remember, AIs see patterns and don't forget stuff. So I've got a system that sees patterns and doesn't forget being fed masses of data. And then a human doctor able to be told by the AI, hey, you really want to call Wayne, because we're seeing something funny in his telemetry. That's coming. It's not coming in 20 years, which is what I would have told you. It's probably coming in 20 months. It may be coming in 20 weeks in places depending on how we have to monitor people for fevers. So we've got an industry that's been seen as backward and insular and over-regulated that out of necessity had to change. 
And I think that's going to be a message for regulators, a message for industry leaders in other industries. IoT, and you know, if we think about IT, what's called OT, operations technology is going to change based on the needs, based on the networks, based on the, inf the uh, investment we're making. So another thing we got to look at in the future, just like telemedicine allows me to have that medical telemetry, what if I had an actuator? What if I could do a nasal swab with a robot? What if I could take somebody out of bed? There's, I, I work at the senior living company, and there's a product called a Robear that was able to lift people out of a bed. So I didn't have to infect, potentially infect the human, or really it was for the safety. I could take somebody that was infirm out of bed and put them in a chair. So if I've got tools that allow me to operate at a distance, teleoperators, now could I operate a construction industry? Could I operate a manufacturing plant? Could I keep my workers safe at home or safe somewhere where they're social distancing and have their avatars, their I don't want to say robot because everybody thinks in terms of bicentennial man. They're remotely operated manufacturing device or remotely operated healthcare device. And could my could I be projecting myself at a distance and driving the bulldozer, driving the dump truck, driving the boat at a distance so I didn't have to be exposing people and being exposed? I think we're going to see an enormous wave of investment, and it's going to be a flywheel effect. A better network means I can collect more data. Having more data and fewer regulations might mean I can do things I couldn't do before and get paid. That then means more people can pile in with more sensors, more actuators, which then leads to the ability to try a lower, um, kind of lower return business and add the capability there. So I think the future is going to be very interesting given the pace of technology that had to be invested to get us to where we are today, a semblance of the ability to work when many of us really shouldn't leave the house. Wayne, I, I couldn't agree with you more. A lot of those points are fascinating what you're saying about telemedicine almost as a model for what could happen in other industries. And uh, these are the, the days when, you know, we see the future coming at us faster than ever before. And I think Wayne, you've given everybody a lot of great things to think about here for today for tomorrow, for the day and weeks after tomorrow about it and putting in the context, coming back to, <clears throat> you know, the boogeyman down there in the basement, technical debt, that's not going to go away. No matter how tightly you try to lock or secure that basement door, it has to be dealt with the issues of people, your employees, your workforce, your partners, your ecosystems, and how they're going to choose to work this onrush of, technology capabilities from IoT, RPA, some of the other things you talked about. Really uh, fascinating, Wayne. Lots of good things here. Um, we, we will get through this current crisis that we're in, but I think uh, you know, we're all going to have to live some things differently. But I, I think it's going to be an extraordinary future that uh, you know, by the middle of this year, maybe we're going to be in a position where we can really start looking into that. I think it's going to be remarkable. I think so too, and I'm going to make a prediction. It's way out of my space, but I predict within the next couple of years, I'll say two to three years, we will get a flu vaccine once every five or 10 years. Uh, a lot of diseases that are anything caused by a coronavirus is going to be cured, <laughs> I believe, in the next few years because of the amount of basic research. And also, there's something, again, not my field, but I have a little bit of healthcare experience. 
recognize that the fact that we've opened up a lot of very, not secure, but, but limited medical databases, the collaboration and cooperation internationally has soared. Medical papers that talk about innovation used to go through the whole peer review process several years. Now, there's no substitute for actual testing and peer reviews. I don't want to say there is, but we've started to publish so much more information that's more readily available. And so we're seeing, I think we're going to see a renaissance in the biosciences. Um, but I do want to leave the group with uh, the, my listeners and, and watchers with one thing. Remember, I do these uh, for the board. I talk to boards. I talk to C-suites. So I'm going to send a message to the board. The first part of the message is systemic risk is real, the black swan event. Does anybody think the next problem we face is going to be another respiratory virus coming out of China? Hell no. It may be another medical problem. It may affect your left foot or your right ear. We don't know. But we do know something is going to happen that we can't predict. So we've got systemic risk. If this happens and this happens and this happens, what does it mean to that? So boards have got to start thinking about systemic risk. Where does this come in day to day? Cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is the physical risk and the, uh, the individual risk and the corporate risk. I've got all these risks aggregated and then I build a systemic risk model. So this is a place to look, board members. How do you manage for business continuity, for security, and those sort of things? And so you've got to be much more aware of systemic risk. That's number one. Number two, boards. Adaptability is becoming the key. How can you pivot? How can you change your business from making vacuum cleaners to ventilators? How can you change your business from supplying restaurant toilet paper to individual toilet paper? You see, the toilet paper industry is extremely limited in how they can switch their machines. The companies that make the rolls that are this big can't switch to making rolls this big because their machines are locked in at these 99.9% utilization rates and they're about lowest cost of production. Other companies that can pivot are able to, maybe, I'm not talking profiteering, are able to get a profit, a return on what they're doing. So boards, how do you build a business that is more adaptable, more resilient, more flexible, and can make decisions faster? I have a couple of clients now that have said to me, I wish I had the information in the data warehouse we talked about. I wish I had the information out of an all singing ERP from end to end, because that's what I need. And right now I can ask any question and get an answer, but I need to be able to ask every question and get an answer right away. And I can't do that. So boards, think about how IT can make decisions or help you make decisions faster. And the third thing is, if you didn't get, catch on boards, technology is more important to you than ever before. There are companies that are gonna come out of this three months, six months from now, that their technology stacks are gonna be up here compared to yours. They're going to win. They're going to beat you. So boards, have somebody on the board that gets it. You've heard me beat the drum for the QTE, the Qualified Technology Expert Director. This is the time to be thinking about having a technical person that can understand and help you move from this pivot to that pivot to this pivot to that pivot quickly. So it's a message for boards. It's about risk, it's about adaptability, and it's about an understanding of what the technology can do for you. So this is your chance as a board member to really position your company 
or right now we've fallen off a cliff, but there's some shape, U shape, V shape, whatever shape, at some point we're gonna be here. How do you as a board ensure that your company is up there? And that's my message for my typical audience, the board members. Wayne, that's great. I think that's powerful. If there's an opportunity uh, that you have some notes together on this pretty well, um, if it's something that you'd want to put together, I think you've got a great second article to come out advising thing. I'll be happy to help with that in some way if I could, because I think the uh, core ideas you're talking about here are going to apply to everybody all the way ranging from the QTE to the other uh, you know, that the CEO coming out of the corner office and saying, you know, somewhat preposterously here in April 2020, if I can't see you, how do I know, you know, that you're working? Uh, it, it's uh, many things come together, but fascinating stuff, Wayne. Thank you for putting this in a very uh, credible, usable, valuable form. Always a pleasure. And everybody stay safe out there. Wayne, you too. You too. Sounds good. Like the look in the t-shirt and uh, we look forward very much to seeing you next time, my friend. Thank you, sir. And thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. Stay safe and stay strong. Be as generous as you can. We're going to get through this. So long. Mm -hmm.